Hey, Tanira. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, thanks for thanks for joining us. While everyone is logging on here, um, how's your day going so far? Very busy, Rick. As you may imagine, extremely I, busy. I can imagine. So for so for people who don't know um, who who uh, Tanira is, uh, she's the chief medical officer of the University of Miami Hospital, U Tower. Uh, she's also um, a renowned pulmonologist and critical care specialist. So, uh, really has a lot of knowledge about what's going on with the COVID crisis, not only from like an administrative hospital standpoint, but also from a medical standpoint. So, so welcome, Tanira. Obviously, you know, great to have you on during these tough times. Um, I guess we'll just start off by maybe you could just explain to people what exactly the COVID crisis has done to the hospital, and I'm talking about not just the deaths, but how does, how does COVID overwhelm hospitals? What are we looking at besides just a death toll and an infection rate? Perfect. Thank you, Rick, for having me. And uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion. So look, let, let's go in stages, okay? So let's, we can talk about our hostel and then how other hostels have been preparing. At our hostel, we have been very fortunate because we've been preparing for this pandemic since January when it first started. And uh, it completely changed the way we do things. And, and obviously, we have to have plans. And these plans have to be adaptable as the situation, which is very fluid, will change. But the current situation that we are, we're essentially running two hospitals. We triage every single patient that comes from the emergency department. And if they are COVID suspects, they go one way. If they are not suspects, they go the other way. But if they need admission, we test every single patient before we place them on the specific units. We have allocated and created uh, COVID units for these patients, so they are separated from the non-COVIDs, so there's no mixture. And as you may imagine, for you to maintain that, you have to have all the infection control measures, all the appropriate PPE, environmental services, transporting these patients is a completely ordeal. And uh, we had to assign teams that are specific to COVID patients. We try to minimize the amount of individuals sort of interacting with the patients, uh, but obviously all the specialists have access to the, those patients, but they are literally separated in different wings and units that we created with uh, a negative pressure concept. As you know, COVID is an airborne disease spread from person to person, and it's in aerosols and also in droplets, and we can talk a little bit more later. But uh, essentially, we need to create a concept of negative pressure that, for instance, in my office here, if I create a negative pressure, the air gets sucked from the inside to the atmosphere. So those droplets and those uh, airborne particles that could infect other people, they go outside of the atmosphere. So all of our COVID units are negative pressure. So essentially, Rick, it transformed entirely how we conduct business. And it obviously now, puts... No, sorry, go on. So no, I was no, going to say, like, what, what does it do to the general function of the hospital, right? Everyone talks about the effects of COVID and how bad COVID is. And I think we've, we've heard enough about that. But what we don't hear enough is how the COVID crisis affects other medical conditions, bed availability, diagnoses of cancer, strokes, heart attacks. What does that do to the hospital and how are you able to still manage essential critical conditions like brain tumors, heart attacks, strokes? Excellent question. So as, as we have the discussion almost like on a daily basis when we see one another, but Obviously, we have to create safety for uh, surgeons or any procedure areas that we need to screen those patients and appropriately test those patients because you don't want to mix COVID with non-COVID. So every surgical patient coming within the system, they are screened and they are tested for COVID. And therefore, if they are negative, obviously, they can go on with their surgery. 
But what has happened now, because there is a limited amount of beds and personnel that you can dedicate for that function. So what happened earlier on the pandemic, we're able, we stopped all the elective procedures so we could reallocate personnel to take care of the COVID. People that are, have a, a previous function, they are allocated to take care of the COVID. Now we're running both in parallel, a non-COVID and a COVID hospital. So it affects tremendously. Now, interesting enough, we're seeing patients don't come just with COVID. They have a lot of other comorbidities. And we're seeing even some patients that are not really with a lot of symptoms of COVID, that when we do test, they end up having COVID. And for that, we need to separate it. But yeah, it's changing. And, it's, and, and we have to cancel or at least postpone some of the less urgent procedures mm -hmm. because we're trying to allocate COVID beds because we're expecting more cases to come. So how how tight is the bed situation and how tight is the staff situation? I, I think our hospital or our system has done a tremendous job in trying to sort of mitigate this issue and tapping the resources is, is an exhausting work because it requires multiple coordination and meeting and a, a very well-organized structure for you to be able to allocate and repurpose uh, personnel. But no question, it's stressing the system. I'm, we're, we're to the point that we're creating now a third ICU COVID team. We mm -hmm. started with one COVID ICU team. Now we're creating a third team because the volumes are increasing. And we're tapping onto resources from different areas for these people to help. So uh, even, it's sort of a, a flag situation when you run the two hospitals in parallel. For us to make up more COVID baths, we need to give it away, the non-COVID baths from the other services. And that's how we're sort of managing. But we don't want to deny care to any patient that must receive care, but it, it, it requires a lot of coordination. Would you say that the effects of COVID directly uh, on patients is equally tantamount to the effects of COVID with an overwhelmed medical system. Because that's, again, I think the focus of this talk is I really want to make sure people know that it's not just the COVID patients who are sick. It's the, it's the overwhelmed hospital system that people sometimes don't understand the downstream effects of that. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is a pandemic. We're in the middle of this pandemic and, and there's no uh, uh, there's no specific patient that is not going to be at risk. You see, the thing is that the, the way I see this, the hospitals, we're in the, in the back end of this pandemic. Whatever is happening in the city on the behaviors, we're seeing the consequences at the, at the level of the hospital. Obviously, we, we, we have a multi-specialty hospital for a variety of uh, different surgical procedures and, and, and brain surgery and in your specialty being one of the main ones. But it's certainly compromising in the sense that we have to mitigate all of our services to be able to provide and allocate COVID beds. And, and, and postponing things that should be happening to your patients that may not be urgent now, but it may become urgent two weeks from now. So we also depend on the city. And, uh, and, and quite frankly, it, it, without getting political, because this is all scientific, we depend on a unified force and message in the community that people understand that this is a very serious situation and we need everyone's help. And keep it simple, wear a mask, social distancing, avoid all the social gatherings and the other hygienization of your hands. That's very simple, not hard to do. Simple. I wish everyone would do it. Um, are we? Are all the hospitals in Florida equally affected? Would you say that, uh, you know, throughout Florida, and let's even say, you know, within Miami-Dade, do you feel like we are better prepared than other hospitals? Look, I mean, we're very fortunate because we work for an academic, a large academic medical center in, 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 in the South Florida. So I think we're very fortunate because 
all the key is in the preparedness and our preparedness as i mentioned to you started back in in january so i think we're we're much better prepared than a lot of the other uh systems and a lot of the other hostels we're the only system in florida that i can tell that we have this concept of vertical isolation and this uh true segregation separation of the COVID and non-covid and provide sort of an equal structure for what they need to get care either if you have COVID or not COVID. But so, yeah, so do but you feel like do you feel like the first wave when it hit prepared us for this second wave? We never stopped preparing. That's the issue. We we, we started the preparation. We never stopped, and uh, and we're trying to adapt the plan uh, as the situation evolves. Yeah. And how do you guys prioritize care? So there's X amount of beds, right? And those are reduced due to COVID. Is there a general formula? Is there a committee that looks at? surgical cases, non-surgical cases, cancer cases, how do you prioritize beds? Right, obviously uh, from a, okay, so let's start from the ED. Whoever comes in the ED that requires care, those patients are gonna be admitted and we need to understand if they have COVID or COVID. That's one set of beds. We look at projections to see what has been the volumes of the ED and the volumes of admission and discharge. So it's called like a hostel throughput. We depend on not only on admissions, but also have a safe discharge and disposition on these patients. But in specific to surgeries, we require actually, there is a perioperative committee that in conjunction with the service leaders, including yourself, that they meet and they look at the case logs and they see what cases have to go because they're urgent and what cases you know could or potentially be postponed but 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 it's as as you as you see it requires a lot of communication coordination yeah and yeah. and obviously like you said you need to have multiple eyes multiple committees evaluating these cases uh i guess another part that is so important but it's never really discussed tell us about the financial toll of a pandemic like this on a hospital system oh my god the the the, the toll first of all the care of the COVID patients in itself, uh, it requires it's sort of a specialized care. A lot of them depend on the oxygen uh, and modalities of ventilatory support and medications and drips to get patients on the ventilator. So it's a, an increased cost to take care of a COVID patient itself. But also what really hits financially a system is the in, in, uh, because we become un, un, unable to do the other cases that generate revenue for the systems because you had to either postpone or even cancel some of the last urgent procedures or cases that could potentially be done but it cannot be done because you're trying to make more COVID bats so it, it's a completely reorganization the way you can do, conduct business for sure so that's important to focus on so one you do not make money off of COVID patients right I'm assuming you maybe break even uh in terms of treating a COVID patient and being reimbursed financially is that a is that yeah. a break even or do you lose? We're looking into the numbers. I don't have the numbers to give you, so I don't know. But we do have at our hostel because we're a cancer hospital. Even though we do other things, we are PPS exempt. I don't want to go into the specifics. It's very complicated financially, but uh, we get paid per diem instead of a DRG. So there is a potential that we could break even on the COVID patients. We, we don't know that. I, I cannot yeah. comment. But one thing for sure is hitting the system is the fact that back in April and May, we had to cancel clinics, procedures, and uh, the normal business. And and, and the, the amount of patients seen in the system in a given day decreased almost by half, which is a problem. Yeah. Are you guys receiving support from the government? 
or are you going to ask for support? We did. In the first wave, uh, each hostel, depending on which system, they were allocated an X amount of money. I cannot tell you exactly how much was allocated to us, but we did. Second time around, because it's not being declared an emergency, uh, I haven't heard that it's going to be uh, you know, allocated for the hostels. But obviously, we're asking, look, I'm part of the mayor's advisory for the city, and we, we do have, to some extent, uh, you know, a voice there. Uh, Dr. Parak, which is the chief clinical officer and the, the CEO of the system, he's been in, also in, in contact with the governor. And uh, we're trying to be very vocal because there's uh, specific needs for the hospital, but I think there's needs for the community as well. Because, as I said, we're on the back end. We're seeing the consequences that what's yeah. not being done outside. I mean, do you suspect that, let's say this goes on for several more months, which is a real possibility, do you think smaller hospitals may go under and may not come out of this being able to function financially? I, I think everybody's at risk, and I think you have to be really smart. One, we have an obligation to the community first to deliver care, and, and I think we, we need to, uh, you know, to get that support to make us able to deliver care. What hospitals have to do is what we're doing. We're flexing. The COVID goes down, other cases come up. COVID goes up, you have to sort of backfill. So it's sort of a balance. Uh, but I, I, I don't know if anybody has the right answer at this time. Yeah. It just it seems like there's so many different difficulties with this crisis. And the financial part, which is not discussed, is often the most important because how long can you stay afloat if you're canceling your elective cases and you're taking COVID patients that unfortunately don't generate the kind of revenue to keep a hospital running? So obviously an ongoing problem. Sure. And as you heard, uh, uh, many health systems, ours included, that there is a mitigation plan, there's consideration for layoffs, or uh, there, there's all these conversations uh, going on, and how can we improve our efficiencies, what could we cut? So this is ongoing discussions. Correct. Now, what about, uh, what about protecting your staff, and how big of a problem has sick staff been? Meaning, you have nurses and you have doctors in the COVID unit, obviously, just like any other unit. What is the rate of infection? So a healthy doctor, healthy nurse goes in there taking care of COVID patients, wearing full PPE, and then become infected and then can't work for two weeks. Is that right. something common? Uh, no, actually, no. Uh, well, because we have this concept of vertical isolation. So when you go to this COVID, first of all, we test anybody coming to the system. So we know already stratified this patient. And even the ones that occasional patients that we have that have a negative test, but it's still a high clinical suspicion, we still place those patients along with the COVID. So there is a very uh, special dress code with a buddy partner, as we call, that when you don and you put that PPE and you doff, somebody's telling you what to do, what's the next step. So by creating that environment, I think we create a, a safety guard around the staff. What we are seeing now, because our staff is young, our staff 